episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and you can find us at Brattleboro Community Television on our Montpelier Happy Hour Facebook page, our webpage by the same name, and Emily's YouTube channel. I want to welcome to the show this week, regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser. Hello, Emily. Hi, Olga. And I also want to welcome James Pepper, who is the chair of the Cannabis Control Board. And we are excited to be talking about pot with you today, Pepper. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I want to start just quickly for folks who are not in Vermont. Some of our listeners, most of our listeners are in Vermont, but some aren't. If you're curious, Vermont, it seems, has been working for years on issues around cannabis and slowly 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 we've been working towards creating a retail cannabis market and what james is about to tell us about the cannabis control board is one step in creating that market um james could you just give us a background on this control board and um how you came to it so you're you are absolutely correct about the evolution of cannabis policy in Vermont. I think the real first legitimate bill, and I'm probably annoying someone by saying that, came in 2015 following a RAND report, um, which indicated that roughly 80,000 Vermonters use cannabis on a regular basis. And so, you know, for the then governor at the time, this really became a consumer protection issue. You know, what other substances out there that people use with such regularity that's unregulated, untested. And so he kind of appointed me as his pot czar in a way and said, talk to the other states, talk to the other regulators. There's, I think, four at the time. Come up with a system that's better than what they're doing, that can provide Vermonters with a safe, tested product and see if we can get any traction in the legislature. I did that. I worked with Senator Sears, um, uh, Senator White, and uh, Tim Ash, and uh, Joe Benning at the time. And uh, we came up with a system that is not the same as our present, you know, Act 164, probably kind of over relied on public safety elements of the cannabis market um, and not enough on social equity. But uh, we did get that bill through the Senate, and I think it, we were one of only two states at the time that actually got a tax and regulate bill through any chamber of their legislature. You know, we don't have a binding ballot initiative here in Vermont, and that's the the kind of more traditional path is where the voters ask for this change, and then the legislature has to respond. We needed to go the kind of opposite way, which is the legislature needed to move, and then we Built, we didn't have really enough public support at the time to get it through the House. But eventually, um, you know, the Senate kept passing this bill and kept sending it over to the House, tweaking it ever so slightly every every year. I think that we're actually in a much better spot with Act 164 than we were with the original kind of tax and regulate bill. So the legislative process, I think, really worked. What it does, Act 164, our enabling legislation, is creates a cannabis control board, which is a three-member board. Um, appointed by the governor um, with the advice and consent of the Senate. And uh, we are essentially tasked with creating the contours of this market. And that is 
every aspect of it, tiering levels of cultivators, you know, canopy sizes, energy, environmental land use um, restrictions, youth safety initiatives, packaging, you know, number of retail shops, uh, all, you know, every aspect of this has been delegated to the cannabis board. um, And then we need to come back and report back to the legislature um, with our recommendations around a lot of this. And then, you know, for instance, the fee structure will be approved by uh, Emily, your committee, and a lot of the other aspects of it will be have at least legislative oversight through the administrative rulemaking process. Emily, I would love to hear what James just said that really struck me is that as a reporter, when I'm covering this issue, so often it breaks down for people very rarely as a consumer protection issue. It often breaks down as either cannabis is medicine, cannabis is freedom, or a social equity issue. It very rarely is talked about as consumer protection. For you as a lawmaker, when you're talking to constituents in Wyndham County, what, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? as far as what people want and what the state has been doing? So I would say that that would be you as a Wyndham County reporter, that you are hearing those particular oh, things. I don't think that, <laughs> um, I don't know I why anyone re- would be surprised about <laughs> like a Wyndham County reporter. <laughs> yes, and so I think um, as a Wyndham County legislator, specifically as a Brattleboro legislator, I have a very, and as a younger legislator, would be middle-aged in any other state, but quite young here (laughs) still in Vermont. I think my experience that I both have brought to this conversation and what it means to talk to and represent my constituents in this is quite different from some of my colleagues in the legislature. I came into this conversation, we had already created medical marijuana legislation before I got to the legislature We already made it um, legal to grow and to consume, but not to sell. And so I came in being very aware that a huge number of Vermonters are stoned all the time, that we have a landscape across the country around some serious criminal justice and racial justice concerns related to the war on drugs and that many of my constituents really do view this as medicine and use this as medicine. One of my concerns with the previous legislation, which I think a lot of um, Wyndham County folks were interested in sticking with, just sort of grow and consume and like don't let government really be involved in this, was that for folks who lived in rentals or public housing, they had no access to commercial cannabis. And so it really became an issue of For me, even more than a racial justice issue in Wyndham County, it really became a class issue for me in Wyndham County, that some people now had the right to do this legally and poor folks often did not have the right to do this legally. And that really concerned me. So when we were looking at moving forward with a retail market, for me, that was the real opportunity there that we could expand this to, we could expand access to more folks and decriminalize the consumption and sale for more folks. I also do think that the consumer protection piece is really important when we look at youth specifically. And I have spoken to a number of constituents who are very, very comfortable with adult cannabis use and very concerned with youth cannabis use. I grew up in an area of New York where I could just drive to a storefront 20 minutes away and buy weed when I was 15. 
Um, you just went in and you gave someone 20 bucks and they handed you a Ziploc bag and you went back out and you, I would do it during free period in school, just like drive on down. So I think I also bring that sort of comfort <laughs> um, with the issue, but that was not regulated. And so we had no idea what we were getting. And sometimes there was some really bad stuff in that bag. I recently saw on Twitter someone say, I'm going to keep on calling it pot or marijuana or weed until it is as, you know, until we really reconcile as a nation what we did to the people who call it that. And I'm not willing to sort of legalize this new magic thing called cannabis. And so I've been sort of stubborn with my colleagues continuing to call it things like weed and pot um, as a way of trying to like, and I understand that calling it cannabis makes everyone feel safer and better. And it's a politically wiser thing to do. Um, but for my role from Wyndham County, from Brattleboro, where I think as a, culturally we're in a very different place than some other areas of the state, it was important to me to sort of hold that line of like, this is a normal thing and it can be okay for us. Like we can just all be okay with regulating this thing that everyone does in the privacy of their own home. You know, I, I want to touch on what you said about what we call it, whether it's cannabis or pot or marijuana. I had an opposite experience where I think in an article I referred to cannabis as, as pot and marijuana and somebody called me up and gave me all shades <laughs> of grief because um, all, all types of grief because they felt that by doing by calling it pot or, or marijuana, I was reharming people for who had been harmed by the system. And so I should call it cannabis as a reporter because that would reduce harm in our society. Oh, I'm so curious for your thoughts on this, Pepper. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not as good on this issue as you might think, you know, because all of our laws uh, up until, you know, two years ago, all said marijuana, marijuana, marijuana. So, you know, it, it, that is in some ways ingrained in my head. But I do know that that there's historical um, biases and there's historical um, th that term is used as a derogatory term in some ways. And so um, I've been trying to be better about, you know, convert, shifting my vocabulary as well on this. So I try to stick with cannabis. It can be confusing at times between high THC cannabis and low, high CBD hemp, but, you know, it's all the same flower. You know, I stick with cannabis until I hear otherwise, you know, I'm sticking with cannabis. Interesting. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about you and your your board mates, uh, Julie Hulbert and Kyle Harris. You were appointed earlier this year. Where are you so far in your duties as a board with the, the market creation? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question because honestly, every time I talk publicly, I really hope to kind of reset expectations as to what was in Act 164 versus where we are currently as a board. So Act 164 uh, became effective during the kind of pandemic session. And so what historically should have been a July 1st effective date, which was the kind of first domino that needed to fall in order to set up you know, the nominating committee and then the governor would ask for names and he'd send them over. And then he'd, you know, the whole, the whole kind of subsequent list of uh, milestones all depended upon that July 1st effective date. 
And yet the bill wasn't passed until October 7th. And every aspect of the bill has been has taken a little bit longer than what was anticipated in the legislation, setting up the nominating committee, receiving the names, actually appointing us, you know, finding out that, you know, we all needed to take time to wind down our, our current jobs. All of those things took time. We were set as a board uh, on April 19th was our first day. We were supposed to have been sat, I think, January 1st. So you can see there's already about a four-month delay. We were supposed to hire an executive director within four weeks. Whoa. It took a... <laughs> That's ridiculous. Did, yeah, I, well, it's... did I pass a bill that had that timeline in there? <laughs> you know, I think that a lot of folks were just reverse engineering. They wanted shops open on a specific date. And so, you know, come hell or high water, we were going to go there. We were going to, you know, line up the milestones to achieve that. And so we have now hired an executive director, which is a little bit of exclusive news um, for your listeners. Uh, Her name is- Tell us who it is. (laughs) (laughs) I will. We just hired her on Friday and uh, she's been quickly making her announcements um, to her employers and her her family and friends. So we've been holding back until today, but she gave me the green light last night. Her name is Bryn Hare. She's a longtime legislative counsel. Um, She lives in Montpelier. She has been at the center of almost every criminal justice reform initiative in the state over the last eight years. You know, she staffs the judiciary committees. We just couldn't be more excited to have her. Again, you know, she can't just turn around and start this new gig right away. So we're going to give her a little bit of a breather um, in order to kind of wind down from this essentially 15-month legislative session that, that you, Emily, just made made your way through. And she'll probably start in mid-July. So our next steps really are to hire a consultant to update our market analysis so that we can see actually what the demand is in Vermont. And, you know, that's a really important question because from there, we can decide, you know, how many cultivators do we need? How many small cultivators um, can fill that demand? How many mid and large cultivators do we need to kind of fill in the gaps? So that, that kind of decision is next for us. We have a report back to the legislature um, with our fee structure to the House Ways and Means, to the October. Senate Finance, um, and the two GovOps committees uh, on October 1st, which will be a major milestone. I think that's the time where you'll see kind of the basic contours of the market start to take shape. So for folks, um, one, I just want to say before we jump into all of that, that Bryn is one of my favorite members of Legislative Council. She is clear. She is has incredible knowledge of the law and also how the law works, which are two different things. She can communicate anything to anyone. And she has. She's really been at the forefront of some. It hasn't always gotten all the way across the finish line, but we have been fairly groundbreaking state on a lot of criminal justice reform, even if we haven't always finished that criminal justice reform. She's worked on some really profound, powerful pieces of criminal justice reform. And so I could name just a few if you want. Just Mm -hmm. I mean, she was the lead counsel on justice reinvestment, too. She passed um, three, and I say she, I mean, she worked on three police use of force bills that crossed the finish line, you know, creating the most, I guess, restrictive use of force statutory standard in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not an easy thing to achieve. And she also was at the forefront of all of our juvenile jurisdiction expansions and changes. 
which is like nationally leading mm-hmm. the yeah, level of juvenile justice reform yeah. and how high the ages go and what's included. Um, as well as, of course, all of our expungement work, which exactly. is often held back by technology and money, but the actual legislation connected to it is quite powerful. That's right. In terms of the next steps for the control board and the fee structure, just sort of want to go big picture for our listeners for a minute. We have many departments and boards and sort of state systems where the cost of fees of those systems exactly cover the cost of operation of that system. When Pepper talks about sort of built understanding what the market can bear, we need to do that before we set fees so that we can make sure that we have like an appropriate closed loop as well as the revenue that we're expecting from this. Fees are always very complex and difficult, but particularly in a market like this where so much of our goal of this is to move people from the informal market into the formal market. So we wanna make sure that none of our fees are so high that people would just have a nicer time doing this privately. Mm, that is a very good point. Thank you, Emily. You, you used the term appropriate closed loop. Could you define that a little bit better? Oh, I think I just said it very casually, so let me try. So often, and I don't necessarily think this is the best way to run state government, and so we can like hold that part of the conversation <laughs> for another day. But we have a mechanism where um, a lot of our regulatory departments and divisions are fully funded through their fees. So the Department of Financial Regulation um, sort of sets its fees to cover its own costs, and then actually um, they produce extra revenue from that. Department of Fish and Wildlife does that, and it's a fairly extreme failure at this point. Um, They're deeply underfunded and not really sure what to do about it. But the Cannabis Control Board sort of also has that expectation of a closed loop that will pay for its own fees. Um, The Office of Professional Regulation also, each of their fees pays for that tiny division within OPR. Thank you. Mm -hmm. James, What we, we have just over five minutes before we need to go to break. What else do you think people need to understand right now about our process? moving towards, as Emily said, really eloquently, moving people from the informal market to the formal market. What do people need to understand now? Because a lot of folks have such huge expectations and desires for for what the board will do. Right. Um, I think that people listening should know that, you know, we're not going to deliver a fully mature market on October 1st. It, you know, we have some priorities in the legislation, both implicitly um, through what was included and what was funded in the legislation itself. We also have some very explicit um, priorities as well. And, you know, Representative Kornheiser, Emily, you you mentioned the kind of bringing the legacy market into the regulated market. Um, that is explicitly in the legislation. The legislature gave us as a control board certain tools to do that. You know, we are required to create energy standards, seed to sale tracking standards, environmental land use standards, groundwater standards, but we're allowed to waive uh, or modify those or make accommodations to those for some of the smaller cultivators in order to make a welcoming environment for them to come in. And we actually are having a board me- a board meeting tomorrow and we're inviting some of the kind of legacy market or kind of the Vermont Growers Association and others um, to come in and really help us understand as a board 
what are these barriers to entry? What are the things that are going to prevent them from entering the regulated space? And how do we, how can we as a board create kind of a more welcoming environment? What else do folks need to know? I mean, another very explicit um, piece of both uh, Act 164 and the kind of follow-on legislation that uh, passed very recently this year is we need to be prioritizing social equity applicants. And it's probably a deeper conversation that we should get into after the break because there's a lot to unpack there. That's another major piece that we are going to try and figure out as far as how do you define social equity applicant and how do you try to repair some of the harms that have been done from the decades-long war on drugs and selective policing and enforcement and redlining and all the rest of the kind of you know second and third order effects of prohibition. So that's an, that's another major step for the board to kind of unpack and unravel. And then you know just Emily said you know we we need to constantly be keeping an eye on how big of a footprint the board is and balancing that with the need to have compliance and enforcement, invest in youth safety and prevention, invest in highway safety. You know, we, we can't take our eye off the ball there, but we also need to keep our, you know, in this closed loop fee structure that we have, we need to make sure that we're not extending ourselves, overly extending ourselves in necessitating higher and higher fees. So there's a lot that we're trying to kind of unravel right now, and, and, and we're, we're only just scratching the surface. I know we've been, I mentioned that we were sat originally on April 19th, but, you know, so much of that first month was just, you know, how do you get customer codes and how do you order laptops and what's our space going to look like? And, mm-hmm. you know, going to surplus to buy, you know, kind of used furniture and, uh, you know, hiring our our administrative assistants so we can actually hold, you know, these live meetings. Um, You know, again, I just like to always take the opportunity to kind of manage expectations about where the board is today versus where the board was supposed to be under in a perfect world under Act 164. But we are expecting that small growers will be able to be growing in the next season. I, yes, and they are very explicitly given a priority status. Um, them, the, the small cultivators, and really I think the um, existing dispensaries are the ones that were, have been given kind of a priority status uh, under Act 164, but we will be starting um, our work with the small cultivators. Okay. Well, and I, I think we should just be explicit that some of the concerns that have come up in these conversations around uh, legislation has been what will happen to the existing medical dispensaries and how will we ensure that this is a market that allows small cultivators and as many people as possible and does not just get taken over by large farms or large corporations. And those have been some concerns that people have had. And I'll say for the 800th time, I think the legislation actually does an amazing job on that. It really does. I mean, there, I mean, there's a lot of anxiety around that second piece too, about the large multi-state operators coming in. And what the legislation does is it restricts the number of individual licenses, any one person or any one corporation can, can own. And so there will, there won't be the kind of franchises uh, of this, you know, you're allowed one retail shop, you're allowed one type of each, each license. 
And so that's, I think, a first in the country um, piece of legislation or aspect to this legislation that really is aimed at preventing kind of corporate consolidation, corporate takeover. There's some concern about the board, um, you know, having these huge canopy sizes because the legislation doesn't restrict the upper end of the um, kind of canopy sizes. I mean, Is it canopy size the amount of land that sort of the footprint of the yeah, growing area? And we can either do you know, the board's permitted to either set a canopy size, which is where you're growing your actual plants, um, or we can do it by plant count, one or the other, or both. And so that, that without setting an upper limit, people are very concerned about, you know, these um, kind of like mass produced strains of, of cannabis. Mm-hmm. And my thinking on this really is that when you look at Vermont and what our competitive advantages are. It's one organic and the, just the pure brand of Vermont. Mm-hmm. And two, it's the diversity of our craft beer, our craft cheese, our craft maple syrup. And so for us as a board, I think we've all, I hate to like get too far off track, but you know, Julie, Kyle and I, because of the open meeting laws, can't even talk to each other outside of an open meeting. So for the first two months, we didn't know what our priorities were with respect to one another, but we had our first meeting and we all discussed our priorities. And one of them absolutely is to create a diversified ecosystem that's welcoming to small and craft cultivators that will allow us to build a, a competitive advantage if and when there is federal legalization and these larger multi-state corporations can move um, their product into Vermont. Really appreciate that because I think there's sort of the... Um, usual anti-corporate reasons to want that. And I think there's some really strong environmental reasons to want that, but also naming that it's probably best for Vermont cannabis industry, like the actual profit making piece of that to stay small scale because of the Vermont brand and what a good job we do and how in a competitive environment, we don't want to be competing with sort of Midwestern growers. We want to be doing things, you know, really high-end boutique organic um, that sort of matches our landscape, but also matches how people perceive Vermont. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And then um, sort of the last piece on that is, and I don't remember if John Gannon came on the show to talk about this last year or the year before, you know, he was really instrumental on the GovOp side of this and his personal professional experience with the SEC gave him, I think, some of the skills that we really needed to balance some proposals that were like a clear violation of interstate commerce laws um, that would have just sort of like banned certain people from investing. And some really what we came up with, with which I think is some really amazing levels of transparency and corporate regulatory mechanism that's going to really help us be both incredibly transparent in who's investing in these companies and make sure that everything is um, sort of above board. And I think it was really some of his SEC expertise that helped us get there. The Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro will return in a moment. the 
second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with Representative Emily Kornheiser from Brattleboro and James Pepper, chair of the Cannabis Control Board. Thank you for joining us, both of you. Let's start, Emily. You you wanted to remember someone. Yeah, um, we lost a um, really wonderful community member in the last few months, um, Stuart Savell, whose na- last name I'm suddenly feeling like I'm pronouncing wrong, loving husband of Jean QL. And um, he was, I think, the first constituent I talked to about cannabis reform. He was out in front of um, the Free the Flower movement. He really believe very deeply in cannabis as um, a medical and spiritual tool and um, opportunity for sort of all Vermonters and really as a citizen stayed deeply engaged and really organized a lot of other citizens around these issues. And so just wanted to um, say that I hope we can live up to his memory. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, they're really, you know, it's, it's a reminder about how far we've come because there is such a stigma around this plant to this day. And yet Stuart was out there. I mentioned, uh, you know, I worked on a bill in 2015 that made it through any number of committees, like seven or eight committees. He was in every single committee hearing uh, right alongside me, you know, talking with legislators, telling about how important this issue was and, you know, just really kind of prescient and and brave, courageous um, at the time to be out so far out there. Thank you, Pepper. Our best to his family and friends. Let's talk about the social equity parts of our legislation around cannabis, but also what brought us to making some of these, the decisions that are in social equity um, aspects. And that is one thing that always interested me when I would read about what other states were doing around cannabis. While the issue would come up, it never, it didn't felt, feel as prominent as Vermont was, was making it at times. Would either one of you just kind of highlight some of um, the social equity components of our current marijuana legislation? One of the major social equity pieces that we did in Vermont is the sequencing of our of our legislation. I mean, first of all, um, we've been doing all social equity has to begin with expungement and reimagining how we use criminal history records. I mean, that's just the fundamental starting point. And, you know, I've often heard that cannabis or marijuana is a gateway drug. Well, really what it comes down to are after the war, you know, decades long war on drugs, we've seen that cannabis convictions are actually the gateway convictions because they automatically close the door um, to folks with respect to education opportunities, housing, political enfranchisement, access to capital. And those have secondary effects on, you know, people's healthcare options on their intergenerational wealth accumulation and just all sorts of other economic opportunities. And so we in Vermont decided to decriminalize and then legalize home grow and possession, which is not the traditional path. I mean, most tax and regulate states 
do tax and regulate first and then down the road, maybe do home grow. I mean, Colorado is a notable exception to that, but that's really the kind of general order of things. And so Vermont, just the sequencing of that has been really important. You know, just one note on expungement, you know, we have seen over the past three years, exponential growth in the amount of expungement records or criminal records that have been expunged. I was testifying on an expungement bill earlier this year. And so I just called um, the Vermont Crime Information Center, which tracks expungements. And, you know, in 2018, there was roughly 2,500 expungement orders granted. Uh, The next year, 2019, there was roughly 7,500. And then the next year, last year, 2020, there was roughly 14,500. So that is uh, just kind of exponential growth on the number of criminal convictions. And that, and that doesn't actually include the over historically 17,000, but I think they're down to around 12,000 merely cannabis possession charges that are still on the books. And those in 2020, the court, court administrator's office was uh, directed to automatically expunge those. So those will be gone as well. Can I add two details to that? One, um, just so folks know, um, sort of theme across many episodes, many of those expungements actually have to happen by um, editing microfiche by hand. I don't, you know, I have some interns who didn't even know what microfiche was until I told them. It's for any younger listeners, it's plastic film that information is stored on. It's like a transparent newspaper kind of you put it on a roll. So that's one aspect, just like, so folks know that sometimes justice is held back by tech, the funds for technology and the resources available for technology. That's sort of a theme we've been working with all year here. And then the other thing, I think it would be um, interesting for folks to understand what you're, what you were doing professionally right before this, because I think it adds um, a fun layer Yeah, sure. So I was um, at the central office of the Department of State's Attorneys and Sheriffs, you know, mostly doing both appellate work and legislative work. I was also the public records officer and the bias incident coordinator. But my main job was to be in the legislature during the session and in the Supreme Court uh, during the summer and fall. And I was mostly doing um, criminal justice reform. It's it's uh, we have a very I would say progressively minded judiciary committee that is looking for creative ways to reduce the impacts of criminal histories, to prevent people from entering the criminal justice system at all, and to really um, helping folks when they're leaving the criminal justice system and make sure that they don't come back in. And the state's attorneys uh, largely are supportive of all those issues. I mean, you know, the last thing that they want to do is see the same people cycling through the system over and over again. And so to think of that way, you know, you really have to kind of go to root causes of criminality. And I was working with a stakeholder group to do the kind of justice reinvestment bill, um, which invests money upfront in treatment and uh, sober housing and kind of wet housing as well, and domestic violence prevention programming with the idea that, you know, those are kind of the people that need wraparound services when they're coming out of an incarcerated setting in order to prevent recidivism. And so you invest uh, in those services and then you save money, you know, in five years in your corrections budget. Um, So it's kind of like a bonding program in a way, but, you know, also just doing, you know, those expungement bills, um, helping the state's attorneys kind of embrace expungement 
when you think about all the second and third order impacts of uh, criminal history records, I don't have to review them again. You know, you just realize that expungement is an economic opportunity. It provides a path to full redemption. It gives some people a target to look forward to. We realize through all the studies that are out there that these criminal history records serve very little purpose after, you know, about five years. Their predictive value on recidivism or public safety drops down to almost zero after about five years. So, you know, the state's attorneys really did start to embrace a lot of these um, criminal justice reform efforts. And it was, it needed to be a dialogue. You know, I kind of needed to be there to kind of provide their perspective, but also educate them on kind of what the legislature was thinking. Because, you know, sometimes they feel like they don't know what's going on in Montpelier. They don't know the motivation behind a bill like earn good time or, you know, reducing probation periods. You know, they, they just think that, they just think that, you know, that's their jurisdiction. Don't tell them, don't tell me kind of like what to do in my own backyard, I guess. Um, but really, you know, they all are committed to kind of these core principles. So that was what I was doing beforehand. I, I'm happy to go back to the social equity piece if, if you want. Um, or just- Yeah, I want to, before we sort of, and thank you for giving that background. I think it's really, when I heard that you were appointed, I was really excited because of how many sort of layers of your career, I think, weave together and into doing this work. When we talk about criminalizing cannabis, pot, marijuana, weed, whatever, reefer, and the war on drugs, I think normally when we read about it in a national context, we're almost entirely talking about folks of color, um, black and brown folks. And I think something that's not said explicitly as often as we could is that when we criminalize behaviors or um, aspects of people's lives, essentially historically in order to control black and brown bodies, that also starts to impact poor white folks almost always um, because it's essentially criminalizing poverty. And so what started and what is sort of the leading, a leading issue around black and brown lives in other parts of the country is true here, but it's also very true in how it's impacted poor whites. And so when you talk to legislators, especially in the Northeast kingdom, and I think Sam Young has talked to us a little bit about this on the show previously. Yeah we're talking about sort of generations of poor white Vermonters who were patching together their ability to stay on their farms and stay on their land by growing marijuana. And so I think that's a really interesting aspect of social equity legislation in Vermont, um, that we are talking about people who have been historically marginalized in Vermont by the sort of consequences of this industry, rather than just talking about it in a national context. It's so true. And in fact, at our first meeting of the Cannabis Board, we asked uh, Susanna Davis, the Director of Racial Equity, to talk to us a little bit about inclusivity in this marketplace. She said just that, which is we need to take, uh, we're required to work with her to develop a definition of social equity applicant, um, which would have access to business training, legal support, expedited application processes. You know, they would have access to the uh, business development funds that was created in S25. 
So we're, we're going to be working with her to do that. And she said, you know, you got to take a broad view of this. Like, think about people that had, didn't have educational opportunities, maybe people that didn't, you know, matriculate to uh, secondary education. Think about people that are, have a, you know, were eligible for free and reduced price lunches, you know, you, you, and talk to the legacy market because a lot of those folks would qualify, I think, or at least have some good ideas about how to define social equity applicant. Mm-hmm. And so um, just sort of want to, highlight again what you said, that when we talk about social equity applicants, we're talking about an opportunity for technical assistance and training. We're talking about an opportunity for sort of extra consulting support. We're talking about expedited applications. So an expedited opportunity to enter the market, um, sort of priority in that market, in entering that market. And then also we have a really wonderful opportunity in this new social equity fund that we've started because it is one of the reasons that the cannabis market often winds up in the hands of rich white guys is it's just like the rest of America and access to financing is everything. But access to financing is even more complicated in a cannabis market because it's still prohibited at the federal level. And so banks, traditional banks, which, um, might have more rules in place to enforce equal opportunity, not perfect rules in place for equal opportunity, but often better rules in place than say sort of just a random investor are prohibited from investing in the cannabis industry. And so access to cash is really what's necessary to enter those markets. And so we've set up this really exciting fund that's being partially funded by the, um, existing dispensaries. And so. And I, you know, I know you're probably not going to, you're probably not going to pat yourself on the back, but uh, you know, you were instrumental in getting an amendment to S25 that uh, said that the existing dispensaries all had to kick in a defined amount of money, as opposed to a percentage of their profits that was capped at a defined amount. A dispensary was kind of a late mover. They didn't want to pay into this fund, for instance. They could just seek their license a little bit later and not, and then the amount of money they contributed would have been probably less than the cap. Emily, you. I will actually pat myself on the back about that. I very rarely Mm -hmm. feel, you know, the committee process, it's often. Everything is a group effort, but um, I think that was a singular effort and I'm pleased (laughs) with it, you know, with some good advice from some folks outside the building. And then also um, the technical assistance and the way the technical assistance is organized. When I was on commerce, um, I think I did some really great work to sort of move that through and help the committee understand. When we started the conversation, the committee, no one knew what historically marginalized meant. And so did some pretty good work to move that conversation so that it felt safe for the folks who were voting for it. So well done. I would uh, just add to what you're saying, Emily, which is that, you know, all those kind of things that the cannabis boards or commissions in other states have done, you know, the expedited applications, the technical assistance, the, the exclusivity period for certain types of licenses has not borne the kind of fruit that people were hoping, you know, Massachusetts has done all of those and their market is, I think, you know, their license holders are about 70%, 75% white and male. And so really this business development fund and the access to capital, it's not going to be a silver bullet. There's not enough money in there for it to be a silver bullet, but it is going to help. And I think that that's one thing that we're going to be doing differently in Vermont 
than we've seen kind of in some of the other states. The other hope I have in Vermont is there's some really cool work in California around sort of cannabis for the people um, and cooperative models for this. And Vermont is, you know, on the, I very rarely like to say we're on the leading edge of anything because I think we spend a little too much time congratulating ourselves on how fabulous we are yes, here. Yes, we do. Um, <laughs> but we are in fact on the leading edge around cooperative business models and having like really successful corporations that are organized as cooperatives. And so, and we have a lot of technical assistance available for cooperatives who want to form here. And so I think, and a good legal framework for it. So I think that might be another opportunity when we think about folks getting into the market who might not have access to capital. We're required to report back on uh, creating a cooperative license. And so, you know, I, just like you're saying, Emily, I, I reached out to the Intervale, you know, certainly Cabot Creamery seems like a decent model. I, I think there's some issues that we would want to consider around, you know, shared kind of equipment and 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 situations like that. But yeah, absolutely, I think that that could be another way to kind of ensure that ownership of these licenses and these companies is actually in the hands of people who have been disproportionately impacted, as opposed to kind of maybe a predatory lending situation that's propping up a social equity applicant, that, so that the, you know, the actual ownership is not in the hands of a social equity applicant. So yeah. What I've appreciated about um, the legislation and what you and Emily just just talked about, Pepper, is it often seems to me that in Vermont we're very good at when it comes to entrepreneurialism and supporting new businesses in general. We're very good at piecing. Like we might have some uh, education over here and maybe we have some capital over here, but never all woven together so that you can get a full picture and the entrepreneur can receive as much support as they need. And that's one thing I just really like about um, this legislation is it does feel like a lot of levers being pulled at once. I think you're right. And it's really important that the kind of technical assistance and support doesn't end as soon as that application is submitted, but it's ongoing and it helps uh, business owners that maybe historically haven't thought about creating a small business or something along those lines, have that ongoing person that they can call and seek uh, advice and support from. And so there is a provision in this bill that requires the Department of Labor, the Department of Corrections, and the Agency of Commerce and Community Development, along with the Director of Racial Equity and the board to kind of come up with these technical assistance programs that hopefully will be ongoing as opposed to just kind of, you know, we'll help you get your application ready. And then we'll, you know, we'll never hear, we'll never talk to you again. (laughs) There's a lot on your, your plate, Pepper, and there's a lot on the plate of the board. And I realize a lot of work has been done here around cannabis regulation. But I would like to hear from both you and Emily, where do you feel there may still be existing holes that we need to keep an eye on or maybe even prepare future policy around? There's a ton of work to be done around transportation. I mean, you know, a lot of no one has successfully cracked the nut of social consumption or special event or the hospitality industry, you know, so, and a lot of that is tied to the fact that you can't take a hit of a joint and then hop in a car. And, you know, we don't have the same kind of infrastructure built up around DUI that we have, or DUI drug that we have for DUI alcohol. 
And so, you know, that's an area that, you know, there's a lot of creative ideas floating around, but, you know, eventually we would, I think, want to get to a spot, you know, one of the issues you brought up early, Emily, is that tax and regulate was kind of a way to achieve equity amongst the people that are maybe are low income that live in, in section eight housing or, or, you know, um, or in an apartment building, don't own their own house. Well, Vermont, because of our public air laws or clean air laws, you actually can't smoke publicly anywhere. There's no place there you can legally consume um, cannabis unless you own a house. Um, so you can't go to a hotel room. You can't do it out in public. And so, you know, creating these maybe special events or social consumption sites is, I think, an important piece of this. There's obviously one thing that's not in the legislation, you know, is outright banned is delivery. Well, delivery might be a way around some of the issues around driving and transportation. So we got to figure out kind of some of the delivery uh, licenses and whether that's a possibility. There's obviously big security concerns with people carrying a large amount of cash because this really mostly is a cash business still. The youth safety and prevention, it's in the bill. It's funded. You know, there's a dedicated tax stream that's going to it. But is it going to work? Does the Department of Health is required to figure, you know, a lot of this out. Agency of Education is, is required to figure a lot of this kind of substance misuse prevention. There's no great models out there, you know, so that's a big piece of this. I, I guess I'll stop there just um, and let Emily take over. But uh, there's a lot there's a lot to unpack in the kind of second and third phases of cannabis policy. Mm-hmm. Agreed on all of those things. I think on the prevention side, um, the Department of Health still has a lot of work to do in how they understand and communicate around harm reduction. Mm-hmm. And best practice for adolescent prevention is absolutely much more of an informed consent harm reduction conversation with youth. And so look forward to them learning their way through that process. I think there's still a lot to be figured out around processing um, and what processing capacity looks like in our state processing and testing. Um, You know, we know that was, you know, with hemp, there were challenges there. Some of them were figured out. There's, we still struggle with slaughterhouses. We have a significant slaughterhouse shortage. So um, our slaughtering capacity shortage. And so there's that. um, And that's, you know, ideally that's something that the market figures out for itself. But um, sometimes when the market figures out stuff for itself, then um, the bigger players are the ones that sort of win. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the ways that a cooperative can be helpful. And then for me, a big part of this is making sure that we can set the fees and taxes low enough that people will get the return they're looking for. But we're still like, this is still a compelling thing to purchase for people. Actually don't consume, don't really like it very much anymore, but I, um, last two summers ago, when we were sort of, I was beginning debates on this, someone recommended that I go spend some time in Massachusetts. And I visited, I don't know, a dozen different stores in Massachusetts throughout the summer, just to sort of see what it was like. And so I'm really looking forward to how Vermont spins its own version of retail Mm -hmm. and how the regulatory environment can still allow for sort of that Vermont spirit in how sales are set up. And that we can keep price low enough that farmers can thrive and that people want to purchase. And so that's always a really, it's a really tricky wicket because this is, I think for a decade, almost people were thinking of this as some sort of magical golden 
pot of money that mm-hmm. was going to pay for universal child care and it was going to pay for universal health care and like money was just going to come down from the sky. And I don't know if that would have been true if Massachusetts hadn't been way ahead of us on this. Um, but I think even then it probably wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have been um, a magical source of money. So I'm looking forward to just trying to balance that dynamic well, because it's really, for me, it's really important that farmers can get what they need from this, that it, you know, perhaps could um, be a supplement to the dairy industry and its challenges. Thank you, Emily. We are out of time, but I want to just check with Pepper before we go. Anything else you want to leave listeners with before we we end the show? Um, not particularly. I mean, we as a board are going to, um, we haven't adopted a regular meeting schedule quite yet. We have an advisory panel that has not been seated fully quite yet, but eventually when we have our executive director squarely in place, um, we're going to adopt a regular meeting schedule. So we'll, we, we will probably be meeting a couple times a week. You know, our meetings are broadcast and you can find our agendas and our minutes from previous meetings at ccb.vermont.gov. Can you say that one more time? Sure. It's ccb.vermont.gov. And that's the Cannabis Control Board. And, you know, we're going to start until we have our executive director in place. We're going to start kind of on some of the legislative intent places and do sort of fact finding so we can figure out how we can break down barriers to entry. So we're doing um, a lot of the kind of small cultivators and legacy market folks tomorrow at our meeting. And then the following week, we'll be doing a lot of um, kind of the social equity ideas that are that have been floating out there. And then um, we're going to move into kind of environmental and en- energy usage and kind of um, do deeper dives into those. And so, I mean, nothing in particular, but, you know, keep an eye out. And then again, our big report um, to the legislature is due on October 1st. James Pepper. Emily Kornheiser, thank you for joining us today. And thank you for that website, James. Emily, if people want to reach out to you, how can they do that? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you'll find links to my email addresses, all my social media accounts, as well as um, a link to regular community conversations, which um, are going to be pivoting to real life, I think, for a little bit of the summer. We'll be focusing on specific policy issues. Um, So really encourage folks to go to my website, check out the calendar and see if there's a policy topic you want to come talk to your neighbors about. Thank you. And a toast to you, Emily, and to you, Pepper, and to everyone who helped build this new cannabis or emerging cannabis market, I should say. Thank you. And everybody, have a good week.